This is your host, Casey DeShock. Alaska Conversations is supported by a community of Alaskans dedicated to our state. If you'd like to view more information about the show, you can find us at alaskaconversations.com. There you'll be able to find this podcast as well as our show archive. The website is another place to find information and data concerning the topics we discuss, events, upcoming guests, and more about Alaska Conversations. If you have a question, comment, topic recommendation, or a suggested guest, you can email contact at alaskaconversations.com. Hello, happy Alaska Day. She turned 61 today. This is Friday, January 3rd, 2020. This is episode two. Welcome to Alaska Conversations. Today, my guest is Rick Whitbeck. He has a lot of experience in Alaska, 35 years experience in business, development, politics, issues, and is currently the state director for Power the Future Alaska. Thank you for joining me. Absolutely, Casey. Happy Alaska Day to you, and uh, it's uh, great to be part of the, of, the, of, the, of the podcast. Appreciate you having me on. Yeah, it's, so the first thing, there's going to be plenty of people that haven't heard of Power of the Future. Maybe it's something new. So what is Power of the Future? What are the goals of Power of the Future? What are you guys trying to get done in this 2020 election year? Oh, you know, thanks for the, again, thanks for the opportunity to just talk about Power of the Future. So Power of the Future is a national nonprofit uh, started just over two years ago um, by my boss, the executive director and founder of the organization, a guy named Daniel Turner. And Daniel um, wanted to speak up for energy workers across the country. And so we are a nonprofit focused on really um, advocating for the appreciation, understanding, and importance of energy and resource development workers um, across America mostly focused on rural America, which includes most of Alaska, obviously, um, and ensuring that they have a voice in the overall conversation of resource development. Um, There's a lot of great organizations out there, a lot of great companies out there doing safe, responsible, um, technologically advanced, you know, mind on the environment uh, development. But a lot of times, those um, membership organizations, the Alliance, AOGA, um, they're advocative for their membership groups, their their companies, and they don't necessarily get down, they don't see the trees for the forest, right? They don't focus on the individual workers. And so Daniel knew that was a gap um, that he was seeing kind of exploited by a lot of the environmental non-government organizations we call EMGOs. Uh, the, the groups out there that are trying to fight development. So when he started Power of the Future, he just wanted to give a voice to energy workers across America, um, not only supporting them, but pushing back on the, the ideologues and the um, environmentally extremist organizations, the radicalized environmentalists who are trying to put those people out of work day after day after day with, um, with war chests in the tens, if not hundreds of millions of dollars. So when you're talking about energy workers, we're talking resource development workers, essentially. Yeah, I mean, everybody from the guy, that the, the lineman at MLNP here in Anchorage, you know, or um, one of the, you know, the, the rural co-ops, um, all the way out to the miners and the people working in the oil and gas fields here in, in Alaska, um, again, across the nation since we're a national nonprofit, but, you know, focused specifically here in Alaska, 
those that are um, responsibly developing our resources uh, and and helping create um, and empower this state. So, oil, oil and gas here in Alaska. It's a when you look at what's happening in Prudhoe or what's happening in the Kenai, when you're trying to develop a, a resource such as oil, oftentimes you're not actually employing that many direct workers. So it doesn't take that many people to run a drilling rig. And there are a lot of contractors, a lot of the that support the industry, but the direct workers are not that high. So is there a reason that Alaska should be concerned about losing or growing oil industry workers? Well, so let me um, respectfully take exception to that comment um, because there are tens of thousands of Alaskans working um, directly or indirectly, meaning for a producer or for a supplier or supporter of those producers um, here in the state of Alaska. You know, um, and when I say tens of thousands, I mean like multiple, uh, multiple tens. Um, when the oil prices plummeted here three, four years ago, and um, there was increased political pressure uh, around, you know, around taxation, and we'll probably talk more about the current threat here later, I'm sure, on the show. But um, when the regulatory environment was not helpful and when the political environment was not helpful, we saw 6,000 lost jobs in the oil and gas sector. That's 6,000 people who, over the span of about four years, stopped working forcefully, right? They either were ripped out or they were laid off or their company stopped doing business in Alaska and they just found themselves out of a job. And so, you know, um, they may not all have worked for a producer them, you know, itself, but they certainly were affected when producers left the state or went bankrupt or um, chose to consolidate or, you know, what have you. Well, and when you're, when you're looking at the economics of it, it's not, uh, it's not necessarily that all jobs are created equal. So one thing for people to keep in mind is, the value, or you can't say the you know the, the actual value, but the monetary value of an oil job, those I mean those are pretty high paying jobs. I don't know exactly what the what the numbers would be, but I I'm sure that it's much more than retail or some of your other industries. Well, I think the number that I saw so mining mining itself is a is one of the highest paid at about one hundred eight thousand a year for an average job. And remember, most of those jobs are not you know, 52 weeks a year actively working on a site. They're ship work. Uh, same thing with the smoke workers. So, you know, they're four and two or four and four or two and two or what have you, but they're not, you know, the majority of the people working on the slope and the inlet um, and, you know, at, at many of the mines around the state, and there are six active, you know, currently running mines in the state that are they're called major mines. Um, those those jobs are shipped and they still pay six figures on average. So yeah, not all jobs are created equal. You know, um, you're out in Dillingham. There's a lot of uh, people to make their money uh, throughout the year on just the Bristol Bay fishery. And that's not a 52 week year deal. You go in, you get your money when you can, you find something to do the other, you know, 35 to 40 weeks a year, or you are fortunate enough to make enough money during the openers and during the season to where that sustains you for the rest of the year. 
So, you know, uh, six-figure jobs are, are few and far between in a lot of the regional locations in the state. Um, and, you know, the, the average household in Alaska makes just under 80000 a year. So these jobs that are paying six figures are you know, way above that number. And the, the rotational work, I mean, even out here in Bristol Bay, when a fisherman comes in, there are there are plenty of interests that are in Oregon, that are in Washington, that are all over the place. But it doesn't mean that uh, having those workers come in doesn't help stimulate the economy of the people that have the businesses that sustain the communities Dillingham and Naknek and Nigigik and these other communities. But that is one of the concerns. I know that you've heard about it. I know that plenty of people... Uh, you know, as you talk to Alaskans, there is, seems to be an emphasis on, well, the oil workers that are going to Prudhoe Bay, those guys are all out of state or they are primarily out of state workers. So why do we even want to protect those jobs? What does it have to do with Alaska? And I'm sure that you guys take a different opinion on that. I just wanted to hear what you had to say about that. Well, I think that all jobs in resource development and energy creation and energy development are, are there to be protected, whether you're an Alaskan working in the field or whether you're, you know, an outsider coming up to support a job that may or may not have the talent available to it in Alaska. And again, I go back to those 6,000 jobs that were lost. But where did a lot of people go when, um, when they were escorted off the slope? you know, voluntarily or involuntarily, right? Um, they went to Williston, uh, North Dakota. They went down to the Permian Basin. So we lost talent. So as these jobs and these opportunities come back online and, you know, we're seeing increased um, lease sales or, or good lease sales up on the North Slope, we're seeing, you know, Kika and Willow and some of the other um, projects come on, on board now up um, outside of NPRA. We have the possibility of Anwar, which I'm sure we're going to talk about on this on this podcast. Um, we have the opportunity for another 10, 15, 20,000 jobs over the next decade, 15 years to come online. And there's not necessarily going to be the talent available in Alaska. Um, I hope we talk about that. And I hope we talk about vocational uh, education. And I hope we talk about, um, you know, educating today's younger people, whether they're, you know, junior high, high school, or heck, even elementary school kids in some of the regions throughout the state, um, helping them train and educating them on the importance of being able to go work in a mine or work at, on the slope, you know, so the power of the future is not just concerned with keeping those existing jobs uh, protected and the importance of those jobs, Casey, we're interested in growing the number of opportunities for Alaskans to have, uh, you know, good-paying jobs, sustainable jobs, family, um, sustainable, you know, community foundational-type jobs uh, throughout the state in, you know, oil, gas, mining, um, especially when it comes to rare earth and, and other materials like that, you know, um, timber, uh, you name it. There's a, a number of opportunities in energy creation, energy development, power development that come from... Um, that have opportunities in rural Alaska. When, and I, I have a couple of years working oil and gas in Alaska in my time here. One of the things I also think that's overlooked a little bit is um, that you may have, you may have myself, maybe you get a job in Prudhoe Bay and you live in Wasilla 
uh, you've you've been here, but your parents have left to Arizona as they get older. And at some point you leave and you become an Arizona resident because you are going to take care of your parents and you have the intention to come back to Alaska. So that is some of the reason that not everybody is in state workers. And you also have another piece of it that once you bring in outside workers, sometimes those workers in their neighborhoods, et cetera, become anchors. Where do you work? Uh, I work at Dallas, 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 Dallas. I work in Anchorage and it brings uh, people and tourism. Some of that gets overlooked, I think, when we're looking at the numbers. But um, I, w- I was just going to see if we could maybe lay the employment on the table for a second. And you were talking about some of the opportunities that we have because our production numbers are significantly declining. They have been declining. Um, and maybe you could talk a little bit about some of our new production. If you want to go just Anwar, that's fine. But we do have some production possibilities in the future. Yeah, you know, I had an opportunity um, to hear, and uh, I'm going to reference a, a radio show that I do every week, The Power of the Future Energy Hour. I'm just going to throw it out there, right? It's on KVNT out of Anchorage. But if, you, um, if you're interested in finding out more about what the DNR commissioner, who is Corey Feige, said about oil and gas production, she was on my show here on Christmas Eve. And um, anybody that contacts you, I'll send you the link for the SoundCloud um, of that, Casey, but uh, so you could put it out on your website. I'll but it was fascinating to listen to Corey talk about, or Commissioner Feige talk about the oil and gas development opportunities that she sees and that she and her team are working on within the state. And, you know, the hundreds of thousands of potential new barrels a day that are out there just in the current exploration and, um, development model, right? So right now, uh, Transalaska Pipeline does just over 500,000 barrels a day. Now, it used to do up to, you know, 2 billion way back when, just short of 2 billion. 2 million. Um, declining, declining uh, you know, fields and things like that, just over 500,000, 508, 504. But there's 200 to 250,000 barrels a day that should be online within the next five years, a 40% increase from what we're currently doing. And that's just on fields um, that are already in development. Then you have, like I said, an EPRA uh, lease sale that happened that was the the best lease sale since 2004. Here a couple of weeks ago on December 11th, um, you had a state lease sale that was the third best in the last 15 years. Um, and you'll have an annual lease sale here sometime in early 2020 if uh, BLM gets you know gets their last couple of things checked off the, the to-do list, right? So um, those lease sales that are happening here within the last 30 days and going to happen in early 2020, um, they're probably not online for another 10-ish, 12-ish years. But they're going to add, as long as there's oil that's found there, they're going to add to or start um, replacing some of the lost uh, throughput on taps. And that's good because as, you know, as the as taps continues to decline off the legacy field, um, you need to be able to replace it in order to keep taps viable. And so 
200,000 barrels a day, you know, um, will certainly help. And again, think about those jobs that are impacted as new, as new development comes online, as new wells are drilled, as, uh, you know, as new pads are built, as uh, new ice roads are built, as, you know, surveying goes on. Every one of those activities require jobs. And whether they're current jobs just, um, you know, extending out or whether they're growth for companies, uh, growth for um, support companies, you know, what have you. Those are people going to work, helping responsibly develop Alaska's resources and uh, and putting, you know, communities and families in a better position than they would be without the job. So there's there's um, two things that are going to come to issue or that are an issue that I see. The first one, I'm not sure if it's something that power the future, or it's, it's definitely not something that power the future is, is going to be addressing, but it's something for us to keep in mind is that as we replace the bo- the barrels of oil that we're losing, when it comes from Prudhoe or Kaparik or mo- more state land development, and it switches to NPRA and to ANWR, that's going to be less revenue into the state coffers as we produce it. Those barrels of oil are not the same as the Prudhoe Bay barrels. That That's just something that we have to deal with. The second thing, though, is that oftentimes people are people look at okay, our residents are saying we need to change something because we don't have the same amount of revenue, and this is what's going to happen over the next ten or fifteen years. And uh, when I was studying energy policy, the belief was oil was always going to be a hundred and fifty dollars a barrel. It's never going to change. Right. Everything. If fracking came, it changed it. Right now, we're looking at we're do we just bombed Baghdad. Things are going to change. Middle East tensions. Alaska's oil is. I mean, everything can change so quickly, and we're making the policies based on what we're seeing today. So, do we have? Well, I know that we're going into a ballot measure fight here, twenty twenty. Do you think that this ballot measure has anything to do with, or that it's? Are you hearing that it's actually going to be impacting somebody's investment decisions, or is this all just kind of noise? Well, can we take a step back really fast from the ballot measure? And I'll, I'll get to it, but I want to I want to go back to something you just said about um, energy policy and energy forecasting. You know, back when when I was entering the, the uh, marketplace and as a worker back, you know, uh, early nineties. The long-term forecast was exactly what you said. Oil was going to have um, uh, a shortage over the next, you know, 15, 20 years, maybe the early 2000s. There wasn't going to be, um, there, people were going to start rationing. OPEC was going to be the, the dominant, you know, worldwide player and be able to basically con- control prices. And don't be surprised if prices climbed above 150. Well, thank God that hasn't happened, right? I mean, for a short period of time, it did like during the, the Iraq conflicts and things like that. But America now, the U.S. is a dominant world player because of technology, fracking, and things like that. America, for the first time in decades, is energy independent. Meaning, what happens in the Middle East? You know, when when the refiners were bombed here a couple uh, months ago, that previously would have been a catastrophic event, right? Middle East conflict would have been something that uh, oil futures would have gone 
120, 150 higher than that? Who knows? But now because of the sheer numbers of, huh? That's a great point. I mean, I I wasn't really thinking about the oil futures. I, I paid attention to the prices today a little bit. Oil went, I'm looking at WTI, went from 61 to 63. I think Alaska right. oil's right around 70. You would kind of expect a much, and you even saw much higher when, uh, it, you know, in other conflicts. Didn't go up very high, relatively speaking. Right, I mean, we're talking about a 5% increase, right? 3% increase. Think about what would have happened 20 years ago. It would have doubled overnight. Maybe not, but I mean, certainly you would have seen 20, 30, 40% increases. But because America has so much um, current petroleum output, right? Alaska used to be number two behind Texas. Now we're number six as far as barrels a day of production. Um, who's, in, who's, who's passed us? Well, Colorado's passed us because of fracking. Permian Basin, New Mexico's passed us because of fracking. Um, North Dakota passed us because of, well, basically because of fracking, because of a huge you know opportunity there, but we still as as Americans are energy independent now for the first time in decades. We're you know under President Trump trying to establish an energy dominance position. Certainly in oil and gas, we're close to that. Right, we are we are um, reaching the point where we are a global. Um, leader and not a global follower when it comes to oil and gas. But we are a global follower in rare earth materials, in um, copper and gold, in, you know, mining opportunities. And that's one of the things that I think Alaska is really well positioned um, to to really help lead the U.S. into that type of uh, dominant position or at least independent position or at least less dependent position. And let's make sure we talk about that here on the, on the podcast. But um, I told you I'd go back to Alaska's fair share. And the Alaska fair share um, ballot measure that's proposed right now, I've seen and spent time um, watching and being involved with uh, the last four, what I'll call oil um ballot measures or oil and gas ballot measures, or in the last case with Stanford, Alaska, you know, the overarching um, destruction of, of resource development in Alaska had that passed, and thankfully it didn't, right? But Alaska's fair share is a poorly written, um, ambiguous, non-specific attack on the oil and gas industry. The legacy fields that um, Robin Brenna and his crew of supporters of the Alaska uh, Fair Share um, Act are saying need to be um, taxed at almost triple the current tax rate. Think about that. It almost, you know, what other industry in in Alaska would um, be able to handle a tripling of its tax rate? A tripling. Well, just- and that's what this. So, so think about think about any single department, uh, and I think this is something that somebody that's on that side, or maybe that uh, thinks that the oil industry can sustain these hits. You need to think, okay, well, let me just grab something else. Let me let me grab a school budget and say we're going to triple your overhead costs or something like that, and and we're not going to give you any more money. 
those those costs. Or, or how about this? Yep. Any any person who has um, a home and they pay property taxes, right? For the for the benefit of the community as a whole, we're going to triple your property taxes. And effectively, the the royalty amounts that they're talking about, the taxation of of the oil coming out of the ground on these legacy fields, which have hit peak and now are on a decline, right? So it's more expensive to get oil out of a declining field than it was when it was nearing peak or or approaching peak production. The tripling of that tax rate is um, going to lead to three things. Number one, it's going to lead to a lack or a decreased investment in that field. Because why would you continue to throw money in a declining field at the same rate that you were when your um, when your return on it is impacted by you know by tripling the the output right or the tax rate. Number two, it's going to cost people jobs because again, if you're not investing in the field, well, there's only you can't sustain the employment numbers. And number three, it's going to put less oil through taps because those marginal um, pockets of oil that you could have invested in and gone after with a stable tax rate that is, you know, fair to everybody involved. They call it Alaska's fair share. It's Alaska's unfair share. But in a fair tax structure like we have right now, that they want to change, marginal pockets, the, the, the supply and demand curves shift, right? And what's marginal now just becomes unrecoverable later. Well, I'm I'm gonna do a little bit of this. Will be on under our podcast when you go to AlaskaConversations.com. I'm not sure, and I think some people would give some pushback about uh, maybe if you've already made the capital investments that once you get to the legacy fields that you don't have the same investments, so those dollars are more profitable. But I actually don't know the answer to that. I just I think that that's something somewhere that uh, or something that somebody would bring up and say that's why we can tax that more. And the other thing is that I, I'm not sure that the Brenna crowd uh, and the Alaska fair share crowd, I'm not sure that they're nefarious in their belief. I, I really do think that, that they believe uh, that Alaska oil is wildly profitable. And I just don't think that the numbers bear that out. I don't know how we could, how anybody could explain that. Um, but the belief is, and when Alaska oil was developed, the, the Trans-Alaska Pipeline, the way that the entire environment was when it was being voted in the Senate, they believed that Alaska oil would be the most profitable oil in the world. It would be close to Saudi Arabia as far as well pressure, how much oil you could produce at a time, the costs, etc. And uh, that hasn't played out, and I'm not sure that that mentality has ever changed. So now we're still looking up there and we're saying, all right, well, Alaska oil is wildly profitable, but I'm not sure that that's exactly the case. Of course, you're making well, money. Well, let me let me let me catch you in here just for cut in here if you don't mind. So, here's really, in, in my opinion, and it's not just my opinion. Here's the problem with Alaska's fair share and the thought process behind this initiative. This isn't 
this isn't just an attack on the oil and gas sector. This is a prop up for the public sector unions. This is let's grab more revenue to the state to offset uh, the shrinkage of state government. Now, I don't know of anybody in the state, at least none of my friends, and, and I have a wide range of friends who believe that we can sustain the current state budget and the current state makeup and not cut the state budget somewhere. I don't know of a friend out there of mine that says the state government is too small or the state government is, is overly efficient or that state government um, doesn't have pockets of, you know, pockets of cuts available to it. Whether you talk to Brad Keithley at Elastics for Sustainable Budgets, whether you talk to um, Ed King at King Economics, whether you, you know, whether you listen to ICER, everybody's kind of come out with a, a number around four, one, four, three, as far as billions of dollars uh, as far as the sustainable number for state government. And we're not there. And although Governor Dunleavy tried to get us down there, um, you saw the pushback. He's facing a recall as a result of that and, and a few other jokes of, of rationales behind the recall movement. But that's a different topic for a different day, and that's not necessarily what part of the future is all you know, uh, supposed to be about. But I, but I will sit there and say that protecting public sector union jobs at the expense of oil and gas jobs is a horrible, horrible trade-off um, for Alaska. They're not equivalent. One produces nothing. One produces 80% of our state revenue source. Yeah, keeping, a, keeping a state bureaucrat around at the expense of an oil field worker is a horrible, disgustingly horrible, bad trade-off for the state for short-term and long-term um, sustainability. Well, that's where somebody's going to come back and say, well, but a, lot, a big portion of those oil workers are going up to the slope. They're not using any of our services. They're not participating in our schools. And the state worker, even though they're getting the money, the state worker is living in the town, et cetera, and benefiting and paying property taxes, et cetera. But one thing I would wonder is, uh, or one, one thing that I've always had concern on, just a question would be how many, it would be great to see ICER or somebody put together some sort of study to show how many state workers leave the state once they've reached 20 or 30 years of service. So is it, is it, is it that the state worker, a state worker can be almost the same as a rotational worker, except for during the time that they were in the state, they were using the services and the other one wasn't? I don't know the answer to that one either. Well, I mean, here's the other, here's the other misnomer and, and the other misconception is that, you know, the vast majority of um, oil and gas workers on the slope aren't Alaskan. I think the number's like 62%, 70, 60, 62%, 64%. So more than six out of ten of those workers are Alaskan. Now I would compare that to the fishing industry. I would compare that to the tourist industry or tourism industry, where the vast majority of um, right there in your backyard, the vast majority of Bristol Bay permit holders are from where? The lower forty-eight. 
that's seventy seventy five percent. Yeah, that's true. Right? Uh, it's a it's so a little bit lower the vast than that. Majority of the on, huh? It's a it's a little bit more evenly split split than you know it might be uh, sixty forty, but uh, but yeah, I, the majority of them are not from Bristol Bay. And then when you look at it, uh, even larger, the numbers get even larger when you move away from Bristol Bay. I mean, if the Perhaps they live in Anchorage or they live in Fairbanks. They live in Delta Junction, etc. Bristol Bay has just become an area where because the fishery is profitable, it makes sense for people to relocate from from Dillingham where it's, you know, $5 a gallon for gasoline and it is $8 a gallon for milk and locate in Anchorage and come over here and you got to you got to keep your boat going. You got to work 6-7 weeks out of the year. I mean, that's, that's the way it is. Yeah, I mean, you know, Chuck Klopp is a perfect example, right? Chuck Klopp, state legislator, Bristol Bay permit holder. Um, he's not, you know, moving himself out to, to Dillingham. He's working his, you know, 10 weeks a year out of Anchorage. And then he's going down to Juneau and representing South, Southwest Anchorage. I don't, I don't have any problem with, with that. At least he's an Alaskan, you know, doing business in Alaska, taking Alaska's resources you know, fishing resources and putting them to use to help not only feed his family and feed others, but spending, you know, taking his money that he makes from that and using it in Alaska, spending it in Alaska. Um, when I, but he's the, you know, he's the minority position, right? The vast majority of permit holders are lower 48 days. And, and in my, in my time in oil and gas, it wasn't for lack of effort that oil companies had. And I, this is just my observation. And we did hire people. I mean, for, for a long time when we were hiring people and we were there during oil prices uh, collapsing, we didn't even look at applications that were from outside of the state to tell you the truth, because at that time we didn't have the resources to move somebody. We weren't going to spend money to move somebody up. Now that would be different in other times, but in more technically in, in more technical positions, I think, uh, my observation was they wanted to hire Alaskans as much as they could, but it, I mean, our, our labor force is not as well developed as the country writ large, you know? Well, and that's a great segue to what I kind of talked about earlier, right? I mean, that's, that's why Alaskans need to understand the importance of energy jobs throughout the state. And they also need to be made aware of the opportunities for future energy jobs as long as we don't let the environmental extremist movement shut down those opportunities, right? For every time that um, a Cook the Keeper or a Glitchin Steering Committee or uh, a Save Bristol Bay come out and start talking about why an area shouldn't be developed, what they're effectively saying is that they value uh, wildlife over human life, that they value um, a bush, a plant, a fish, a, a, a caribou over a family's ability to sustain itself, a family's ability to um, to have uh, self-reliance rather than being reliant or dependent on you know the government to sustain itself, and. That's why Power of the Future is so advocative and protective of energy jobs. Because not only do they generally pay pretty well throughout the country and, and throughout the state here in Alaska, but they're in areas of the state and areas of the country that their foundational um, 
you know, cornerstone type jobs for that community. And, and I'll use a perfect example, right? Houston Valley Coal Mine just uh, celebrated last year. So they're in their 76, almost 77th year of production of coal in Healy. And by the way, they have um, known reserves of almost 100 years or more. They could just continue on their land developing and, and mining coal for another 100 years. That's how much coal is up there. Um, but they've been doing it for 75 years. They have a couple hundred employees, like 200 employees. About 65% of the town of Healing works for them, of the, of the eligible you know, workers. They have second and third generation, um, second and third generation uh, miners. They got three bears, right? They have grandchildren. Huh? They got three bears, right? I think they got three bears. I mean, they're Healy's. Yeah, they got three along. bears there. Yeah. They have Nordstrom soon. Anchorage is Nordstrom. <laughs> Probably not. But, you know, but they're also not only the, the job leader in that area, right? They are, they are the employer for the Denali borough. Um, they're really the biggest, you know, uh, year-round jobs. They, they kind of have glitter gulch there and, you know, the Denali tourist area during the summer. But you really just have uh, new stability year-round. But they're a philanthropic titan in uh, interior Alaska. If you look at UAF, if you look at, you know, uh, Fairbanks North Star Borough Hockey, if you look at Boys and Girls Club, if you look at, um, you know, you look at the basketball league, you look at the, the uh, homeless and, and shelters, they all have Youth Valley as a sponsor. Well, so Youth Valley puts their time and talent into philanthropic giving that, you know, those jobs are under attack from people like Michael Bloomberg and the Sierra Club, and their Beyond Coal and Beyond Carbon initiatives. Michael Bloomberg just said he's going to get $500 million of his own money, of his own money, over the next 10 to 15 years to help finish off the coal industry in America. Meaning, the mines and the power plants are under direct attack by Michael Bloomberg and the Sierra Club. That's a couple hundred jobs, Kate, but here's what it really is. It's a community foundation. It's the very fabric of that community if something were to happen to um, Yusuf Valley, and if something were to happen where the Sierra Club, which I guarantee you they have that as a target on their Beyond Coal initiative. They're one of about 200 remaining coal mines in the country. They're, they're there in the process. If they win and the Sierra Club quote-unquote wins, they get to check that box off and say, yep, we closed down Yusuf Valley. What happens to those 200 families? Well, Michael Bloomberg and the Sierra Club aren't repurposing, you know, their workforce and not sticking around, they're going off to the next conquest. But what would happen to Healy? It would basically cease to exist. What would happen to the philanthropic communities uh, or, you know, culture in the interior of Alaska? It would be gutted. And, and that's what people don't necessarily always think about, right? Is the aftermath of what happens when an environmental group wins and either shuts down an existing opportunity or keeps the potential opportunity like Pebble or Donlin or, you know, Anwar Development or Graphite One or, or, or any number of other opportunities, the, the Ambler Mining District from outside of uh, you know, the Northwest Arctic Borough. When those are kept from being able to be responsibly developed, families are um, gutted. Families have to stay on the government bond. Families have to out-migrate to go find work. 
and we have to split up because maybe, you know, maybe dad has to move into Dillingham instead of being in Ileana um, so that he can find a job and he commutes, you know, and goes home one weekend a month or what have you. It tears away the family fabric. It tears away the community fabric. It tears away the cultural fabric. And those environmental groups that are extremists, that are radicalized, that are, you know, wildlife over human life, they just chuckle and count it as a win and go on to the next conflict. And it's despicable. Two things I would say back to that. This is something that uh, both sides kind of have to answer on this question. The first one is... um, the mining industry, the oil industry, other resource development industries. I'm not. I'm not so sure that uh, some of the people that may be opposed to their development. It may not be that they're necessarily choosing uh, one life over the other, but perhaps they're they're just uh, distrustful that the benefits are going to actually trickle to them. They see a renewable resource that's going to provide uh, a way of life for ten. 000, it has for. 10,000 years, 20,000, 100,000 years, and that it will do that into the future. I'm not saying that that's necessarily, that that makes, that that's completely true, but that is, that's going to be the one side of the argument. The other side is that as we look at climate change, some of the problems that one side is going to say, all right, yeah, we're going to tear some social fabric, we're going to have the problems of no jobs and etc. However, if we continue on our current path, we are going to see massive climate change and that is going to disproportionately impact rural Alaskans who are more reliant on subsistence and it actually probably is going to benefit most of the urban Alaskans because you're going to see it in lower heating bills, etc. But one point about the mining industry, irrefutable fact, of all the six mines, everywhere that there is a mine, it is either the largest or the second largest taxpayer in that borough. So there are Absolutely. A, there are a lot of things that the mines provide. So um, Alaska is going to have to answer, all right, which way should we go? We can either mitigate or we can adapt. I don't know which one's the right answer. I'd, I'm not sure anybody does, but when we look at what we produce – the 700,000 people that we are, let's say we mitigate it and we don't produce any resources whatsoever, does that do anything to change our climate? I mean, how much are we actually adding to and destroying the environment? There are some specific cases in mining, but what about the, the other instances? What if we do avoid all production? What are we forgoing to avoid that, and does it make any difference for Rural Alaskans, not sure. So let me talk about climate change first. Um, The the groups that I get to go and battle with every day have called me a climate change denier. Far from it. What I am going to say is that I have been in Alaska for a long time, and I know that Winters are different now than they were back then, and I know that summers are different now than they were back then, and I know that the cold that I experienced in Fairbanks in the late 80s and early 90s doesn't happen very often in Fairbanks anymore, right? So 55, 65 below. Um, I know what kind of summer we had in Anchorage this, this, summer, this past summer. It was glorious. I hope we have it again next summer. 
fires can go away, right? The fires were horrible. But I love to be 85 and 90 degrees weather. Absolutely love it. Um, if that's climate change for you, not. Know, it was a phenomenal summer. But here's what I'm going to say. Um, I have yet to talk to anybody who, well, you and I talked about this yesterday, right? I had a guy take me to task and tell me that he wanted, that if, that if he knew now what, or if we knew then back in the industrial revolution day, what we know now about how we've ruined the planet and are, you know, 10 years away from irre- irreversible climate catastrophe that we should have gone back and just forgotten about the industrial revolution. And I told him he'd already be dead because he would have died of polio or died of, in a black lung or whatever. Um, I have yet to really think of anybody who hasn't benefited from the industrialization of America and the industrialization of the world in the past hundred plus years. And um, although I, you know, I have friends in Cactovis and I have friends in Shishmarish and I understand they have seen pictures and have talk to them and, and, and know what kind of changes are happening um, in their coastal communities. They also have running water and they also have internet and they also have lots of other things. And I don't think anybody would tell me and I'm happy to take feedback, you know, from your, from your podcast listeners that the trade-off between industrialization and um a climate change, which may or may not been, have been exacerbated by human activity. Obviously, some scientists say yes, some scientists say no, some say it was accelerated, some say it's part of the, just the natural um, ebbs and flows over the last you know hundreds of thousands of years. But the technology that we have today, to me, is worth the risk. And by the way, if People who are preaching the doom and gloom scenario of the world's going to be irre- you know, irrefutably changed, irreversibly changed in 10 to 12 years truly believe that deep down in their heart the way that um, they say they do, then they wouldn't be making some of the decisions that they're making. Obama and his, you know, buying um, homes on, on Martha's Vineyard right by the ocean. Well, if the, if the ocean's going to rise, then Obama just bought a you know an underwater house, right? Um, if that's really going to happen, then people are still living hypocritically. So I'm just going to say, where's you know where's the irrefutable proof? And would you take back the last hundred years of of um, technology and life changing events? You know, again, finding a polio vaccine, et cetera finding radioactivity that, that causes cancer, cancerous cells to shrink or disappear. Would you trade that off for what we're facing potentially in, in uh, climate changes? I would tell you that everybody, if they really thought deep down inside, would never want to go back to the pre-industrial revolutionary age. Prove me wrong. I want to hear it. If, if somebody thinks we should go back to the, you know, the, the pre-industrial revolution, I'd love yeah, I don't. I don't think anybody's going to be able to to win uh, that argument with you. But as as the climate is 
I mean, noticeably changing. There seems to be a consensus. There seems to be something that we need to do about the climate. And and regardless of whether it is 100% that, okay, it is man or not, I, I think that's real. That's kind of irrelevant. Um, we've got to do something about it. And when we look at, especially in rural Alaska, there's going to be some winners and some losers, right? And so um, it, regardless of, of what happens, we do have to stand ready. I mean, we have some villages that are falling into the ocean. We have other villages that have terrible infrastructure problems. Um, and we're going to have to, we're going to have, to, that's going to end up having to be something that we address. However, uh, what I would also want to know from either, either side would be, okay, we can, we can adapt by moving a village, etc. But if we mitigate and we say, we're not going to produce anything here, we're not going to do any more resource development, where do we get the revenue to adapt? So we're going to have to adapt regardless, but we need to also have revenue if we're going to adapt. So that's one of the things I'm, I'm not crystal clear on. I'm not sure anybody is, but it is something that we got to think about going into the future. I also go back to these, you know, extremist organizations that are fighting in and all development, right? I mean, I, I go back to Cook and Lake Keeper and Alaska Center. I call them still Alaska Center for the Environment. Um, they're the guys that back, you know, in the 90s, early 2000s, uh, all the way through late 2000s, were fighting projects like this just sitting with Hana Dale. Why? Because it might have harmed fish. Are you flipping kidding me? Had Cook Inlet not found a bunch of gas underneath it and had, you know, had we not had a basically a glut of natural gas that powers my house today and may power down the road, Gonlin and may power Pebble and may power villages and, you know, and, and be able to um, bring, you know, a cleaner way of, of heating homes. Well, hydro is one of the cleanest uh, energy sources out there. The Sisseton Watana Dam at the time would have provided somewhere between 30 and 40% of South Central Alaska's energy needs. And yet it was fought by these same groups who supposedly want to transition from fossil fuels to renewables. Why? Because fish needed to be protected over power, which goes right back to my earlier argument that these idiots, and I'm going to call them idiots, that value wildlife over human life, that value a plant or a, or a fish over a family's ability to sustain itself in Alaska, need to be called out for their idiocy, their, their um, yeah, their idiocy, Casey. Well, I mean, there, I would, so on, on that, uh, I would, you, you and I will just, I mean, we'll disagree on that one because there's different perspectives, right? So um, the truth is, if anybody's being honest, uh, fish, let me just use Bristol Bay for an example. Fish are, are an important part of everyday life in, in Bristol Bay. It's part of the culture. It's part of the subsistence, etc. Nobody is, while it is true that nobody is, is, living an entirely subsistence lifestyle. There are some fishermen that are making all of their money and subsisting by the fish. Um, there are a lot of, there is a lot of lodge activity. There's a lot of sport fish that goes on and you have basically the last wild run 
the last great wild run of salmon here, and it mixes with one of the greatest deposits of ore that the world has ever found. And it's something that human beings really have to, as humans, we're going to have to look at it and, and come up with our values. This is something that, one thing that I would say is that Alaskans should be deciding this and it shouldn't be something that because you testify in New Jersey a hundred times, a hundred times, a hundred times that you're the one that dis, that's deciding it. But most Alaskans have decided that they're anti-pebble, for example. But we yeah, have to I, I mean, they're anti, they, they were anti-pebble. They were anti-pebble on the previous iteration of the mine plan. Correct. Yeah, I mean, the the mine has the mine has changed, and but you would also find people that say, okay, look, but if you build this mine, you're going to expand the mine down the road. That's what's going to happen. And, and I and I love the camel under the tent. Um, philosophy of people like Alana Hurley and the state Bristol Bay coalition and trout unlimited and Brian Kraft. And again, a lot of those lodge owners and a lot of the fishermen who are ignorant to the science behind pebble. And, and I've spent a lot of time, a lot of time studying pebble here this last year and talking to people at pebble. And I am an unabashed supporter of the process that a lot of these environmental groups, mostly based out of this place, are trying to circumvent and truncate. Here's what I would tell you. The mine proposal that's out there right now is a completely different mine proposal than what Northern Dynasty and others brought forth 15 years ago. And if people are still um, fighting that mine, then they need to get with the times because that mine is no longer on the table. That mine, the arsenic, the tailings dam, you know, with the earthen dam, but with, with a water-based, very, um, very viscous, um, you know, uh, opportunity for rupture and a Mount Pauly-style um, catastrophe, isn't the mine being proposed today. It's a 20-year mine instead of a 75-year mine. There's no arsenic. There's a... Um, a sludge field basically behind the, in, in the tailing thing. The sludge field. It's not water-based. It's a much more dry, um, kind of slurry type content. And the other thing is about that, that if the whole, um, if you build it, the camel, you know, camel's nose under the tent, and sooner or later you're going to have a whole camel in there. Well, the mine, as proposed, if it were to ever be increased would go through the same NEPA process, the same fight, the same public uh, comment period, the same everything that this current iteration is going to. But again, I think there's been a, a narrative of fear spoken by so many people with or without scientific information over the last 15 to 18 years where people just believe the fear. People just People don't want to believe the science and the science that came out from the same people that have been doing every other um, NEPA study in Alaska and elsewhere says clearly that the, the current mine as the current mine plan as proposed would have little to no impact on fish and cricket and mineral 
That's clear. Well, now, that, that, that doesn't fit the narrative of fear. It doesn't fit the narrative of fear of the Save Bristol Bay Coalition. And I know I'm going to get in a lot of trouble with the people that are listening to this podcast because they believe or they are perpetuating a bold-faced lie. Now, I'm not sure about lie, but they have an opinion. But keep keep going, Rick. Keep going. That is that is not based in scientific uh, fact per the draft EIS. So, but it's a great talking point. It's a great talking point. It is, and, and there's, you know, there I, is there are there is plenty of fear about Pebble. One thing I would I would say when we look at all of, all of these different minds, you, um, it's something that we have to to determine. Okay. If Pebble isn't built, and this is, you have a lot of experience with Red Dog Mine. I believe that you have a lot of experience with Red Dog Mine. And ju- just to just to consider uh, Red, uh, Red Dog for a second, there's actually a subsistence board for Red Dog. So some of the elders up there, I don't know exactly how this, how the composition works, but it's, it's an extremely unique infrastructure or oversight that was developed for Red Dog. There was a lot of concern about uh, caribou. That hasn't actually come to fruition as far as I know the early studies that said, okay, these are going to be the impacts. There hasn't been actually as many impacts on the caribou specifically because of Red Dog. Now, globally, we're we're experiencing a problem with caribou, but Red Dog is not the one that's causing it in the Northwest Arctic borough. Um, there's, but, but there's also right. been some other interesting developments in from Red Dog. One that I talk about is... ICER, I believe it was ICER did the study, but I, you know, don't hold it to me. So actually just forget that I said ICER. That way it doesn't get attributed to them. Somebody did a study where they looked at what has happened in the Northwest Arctic borough, as far as education goes, controlled for the increase in money from Red Dog Mine, controlled for all of et cetera, et cetera, and have basically concluded with absolute significance, simply having the ability to go to work at Red Dog where those abilities didn't used to happen has shown the Northwest Arctic Borough School District having the largest increases in student performance since 1989 than any other region in the state. That's, I mean, that's just the data. Right, because ultimately the money that's come into the local government from the mine has been spent uh, well. And it's been spent judiciously to not only upgrade the infrastructure and not only bring in good teachers and not only bring in, you know, but, but also to bring in opportunities for kids in the region to learn about job opportunities in, at the mine. And whether it's housekeeping or, you know, a technical environment, right? There's hundreds of people and thousands of people back at a time, um, from the region who either currently work at or have worked for the mine during their lifetime. If you go up to the mine, and I was there uh, about, it was just about two years ago, a little over two years ago, my last time at the mine. Um, the preponderance of employees are um, from the region or from Alaska. As a matter of fact, I heard a number when I was up there about four years ago, and I, I don't know whether the number is um, accurate still today, but one-third of all of the jobs in the Northwest Arctic Borough, meaning Kotzebue and all the 
surrounding villages. One third of all the jobs, one third of all the employment in the region is at Red Dog. Now, think about that. Everybody that works, you know, for the school district and the borough government and the Neelic and everywhere like that. One third of all the jobs in the region are at or support Red Dog Mine. That's crazy. And Red Dog Mine has been uh, quite successful. Uh, it's an example of what we can do in in Alaska. However, going circling back to our discussion on Pebble, not I'm not going to take an opinion this way or that way. I just want to put this on the table that there are. Uh, reasonable objections to the creation of pebble and then there are reasonable arguments for the creation of pebble the closer that you get to the to the mine this is just this is just evident i mean this is real closer right. so if, that, in the, if you're in the lake region it's a huge support yeah it, you you get more support the further away from the mine you get the less support you get for the mine that is that is true i think that another thing that frustrates me with pebble is that I think about Colorado and I say, okay, let's make Colorado a state today. We just happened into Colorado. Nobody's there except for a few uh, native Coloradoans. Okay. There would never be a ski resort built. There would be, there would never be a Denver. There would never be anything. Now, I don't think that the Bristol Bay region wants that sort of development, but, um, as we go forward, looking at something like Pebble Mine, another major risk, and this is another risk for Anwar, is there the marketplace is not going to open up and take, you know, be very willing to have copper from a Pebble Mine in the future. The environmental groups that you speak about, they are going to have more sway, and as Alaska as we slow, we're pretty slow in developing our resources and it's going to start becoming more, uh, make more sense for them, for large corporations to say, look, we're going to avoid Alaska because it's horrible PR and we can get the stuff somewhere else, especially with our oil. Copper is not the same because of the demand, but especially with our oil, because we produce almost nothing in the world. I mean, there's 96 million barrels produced a day of oil. We produce 500,000 of it. Yeah, let, let's go. Let's attack these from two different areas, all right? So, I, the oil and gas, um, the oil and gas side of this, I completely agree with you. If we don't, if we, if we as a state and we as a nation are unsuccessful in opening landmarks here within the next couple of years, for, for exploration and to go ahead to develop the Tenoch area, the Arctic Plain, I don't see Anwar ever being developed. If the political pressure and the environmental extremist organizations win and shut down the time frame um, for developing and opening Anwar, then I don't see Anwar ever being developed, ever, because of like what you said. Um, well, the environmental green movement trying to get off of fossil fuels, the overall amount of oil in the world, the opportunities that are already existing in the U.S., in Appalachia, 
through fracking in North Dakota through fracking, you know, Canada's tar sands area, fracking behemoth, um, you know, Artesia area and uh, in, in New Mexico and the Permian Basin, you know, between, between New Mexico and, and Texas. I mean, all of those opportunities um, will make ANWR that much more tough to develop. Now, I'm going to contrast that a little bit with our favorite uh, Bristol Bay subject, right? The green movement needs two big things in order to continue with um, its march towards a, a greener, less fossil fuel-based um, energy revolution. Their words, not mine. One is copper, because that's how storage um, opportunities are going to become more and more prevalent, right? Batteries need copper. Wind turbines need copper. Uh, but so do cell phones, so do computers, so do, um, you know, so, so does so much of the green movement's um, necessary products, right? And, and supplies. The largest copper deposit in North America, Pebble. The largest gold deposit in North America, or second largest, Pebble. But I mean, really around copper, a, a, a green movement needs, needs copper. And they can either source it from a country that doesn't have OSHA um, regulations, doesn't have child labor regulations, doesn't have um, you know the safety standards and the environmental standards the U.S. has, or they can get it from the U.S. And the largest opportunity is Pebble. So, copper aside, I mean, Pebble aside, copper's kind of a big thing in the green movement. But the other thing, Casey, is that an environmentalist who doesn't see the need to mine Alaska for its rare earths is a hypocritical um, environmentalist, right? Because there's so many things that happen, so many different um, materials and rare earth sources that are almost a hundred percent mined by China. And we don't even, we can talk about the socioeconomic side and the political pressure of being basically held hostage for these, for these products by a country that doesn't like us. It hasn't liked us for what, 50, a hundred years, right? We are basically held hostage by China for, um, for rare earth materials. And that's a shame. We when do, we have we have the capacity to do it here. Huh? We do have the capacity to do it here. Um, Absolutely. There, Absolutely. When we look at when we look at Pebble, uh, the one thing I would say because of because of the fish, the industry over here, the the uh, way of life, subsistence, and it's not just the fish. You're talking about caribou and other wildlife. Um, and it's more incumbent on Pebble to prove that they will do it safely than it is on somebody in the region saying, I don't think that you can do it safely. And that would be true of any, well, I think that, and I think that Pebbles, Pebbles response or the U S government's response to the Pebble plan and its draft DIS has shown that it can be done safely. And we're just, I mean, we may just, just have to disagree on that. Right, because if you talk to United, or you know, if you talk to United Tribes of Bristol Bay, and if you talk to the Fishermen's Coalition, and 
Trauma Limited and Brian Kraft and his, you know, his lodge, um, there's no way that they can take the risk. Well, there's no risk. If you read the, the draft EIS, there's little to no risk. And, well, any risk is risk. Well, yeah, guess what? I can stand out in the middle of, you know, in the middle of the street and get hit by a car or not get hit by a car. But if I go out in the middle of rush hour, I probably have a bigger chance of getting hit by a car. If the mine as being that was proposed 15 years ago was still the mine today, it probably wouldn't have had the same response from the, from, um, the Army Corps of Engineers. It's a different mine. It's a different time. It's a different plan. You know, the people that are fighting it, I think, are, are fighting it for legacy and historical reasons, not practical reasons. We can agree to disagree on that. But an environmentalist who calls for a green economy and green energy and no more fossil fuels and a Green New Deal and all of those destructive to Alaska's job um, situations shouldn't be fighting and certainly shouldn't be fighting the Amboy Mining District and shouldn't be fighting Graphite One and shouldn't be fighting the Palmer Mine and shouldn't be fighting a lot of other opportunities in the state because um, it will supply the green movement with so many necessary uh, you know, components in a, in a non-politically threatening uh, situation. Just like the way that, you know, Iran, Iraq, Saudi Arabia, uh, used to be able to basically control the price of oil and, and the panic factor in the U.S., China could do it today. They could say, you know what, I'm sick and tired of this whole Trump, um, you know, trade embargoes, you know, increased stress. Screw it. We're not going to allow rare earth materials to go to the U.S. Effective February 1st. What would be our response? Uh-oh. Yeah, we would, we would have very little. We would have very little that we could do in that situation. I'm sure that we – I don't know exactly, you know, nationally what our – what we have for reserves or what's being mined on a given day. I, I understand some of the – or I understand the six major mines in in Alaska, some of the proposed mines, especially southwest Alaska with Donlin and Pebble, but I don't know where we're at nationally. Uh, I don't know if it's one day. We import almost 100% of what we use. Almost like 94, 95% of most material and a hundred of others. So we'd be, we'd be, we'd be over a barrel, um, which is why opportunities like the Ambler, you know, district and Pebble and um, Graphite One and places like that are so utterly important to, I call it U.S. energy security, national security. Um, and I'm not the only one that says it, right? Those are those positions and those uh, those lines that should be protected and and you know and supported by people all over the U.S., not just people that have an inkling for being able to do it responsibly and and uh, safely. Well, it, you know, when you put Alaska in the in the context of the rest of the U.S., I'm I'm not so sure the rest of the U.S. really care. I mean, 1975, we're getting ready to build. Taps, 1968, we, you know, Prudhoe Bay's found oil embargo. We start pumping oil. Maybe people thought about Alaska a, a little bit, I don't, perhaps. Yeah. Today, um, we we barely produce any oil. People, and we, lo- we love to, things like the permanent fund dividend. People will say, oh, well, that's crazy that Alaska does that. Anybody I talk to that has never been to Alaska or doesn't know much about Alaska, 
some of them might vaguely understand that we get a check, but they don't really know. They don't, they don't know any of the geography. They don't know any of the people, how any of it works. And so it's very easy for somebody to say, you know, Alaska is on my bucket list because Alaska is a special place. You know that, Rick. I know that. Uh, you go around the world, you're traveling, and you say, hey, I'm from the United States. People are rolling their eyes. Oh, this is a loud American. Hey, I'm from Alaska. Wow. Yeah, I'm from Alaska. Absolutely. Yeah, you say I'm from Alaska, and it's like, wow, you're in everywhere. Everybody wants to be here. That Not everybody understands the resource development. There is a very – it's unbelievable to me that you have – this is just my wrap-up on Pebble, that you have such a great resource to be mined. And you have such a resource that provides the subsistence for individuals and that provides for the commercial fishing and the jobs and the canneries and everything that goes into that, that you put them both into one area. And it, I think, like I said, we both agree, Alaska's a special place, right? I can't think of any organization that, that wants to come in and purposely and mysteriously reach Alaska. First of all, would ever even allow those those organizations to put forth a plan. Let's not kid ourselves. Pebble, one of those companies, Pebble has utmost respect for Alaska because most of their employees are Alaskan. Right? I mean, I know the team. They're Alaskans. They're long-time Alaskans. They're lifelong Alaskans. They don't want the, the grandeur and glory of this of this state, you know, ruined. But they do want an opportunity to work the process. And uh, they don't believe, nor do I, nor should any rational Alaskan believe that circumventing the process, truncating the process is in the best interest of, you know, jobs and potential employment in our in, in this in the future of the state. Wrapping, let me let me just wrap up the the pebble topic with uh, it's important that uh, an organization like Power of the Future is making it. You're making a case for it. Uh, Save Bristol Bay, making a case for it. But it's the it's all of the individuals that are listening to the to the back and forth that you know somebody you need to get both sides of every story. Take a little bit of time, understand it. In this case. You and I are going to disagree on Pebble. You and I agree on basically everything else when we're talking about this resource development. But it doesn't it doesn't mean that you're right or I'm right in this situation. More than likely, if you have any sort, you know, if you're if you can just look, you can believe that okay, Pebble will probably someday get built. And I think that people are justified in fighting Pebble Mine. People are justified in fighting for Pebble Mine. Um, but I don't think that we need to go to the point of, uh, you know, setting explosive devices in, in people's cars and having it tear the communities apart because that is another thing that happens, especially here in Bristol Bay, is that if you're talking back and forth, an issue like Pebble Mine shouldn't be something that just tears the community apart. We need to have a, a dialogue about it. We can discuss about it, and people can have differing opinions. And I, I, I totally agree. I mean, the there is a um, there is a vitriol 
um, that is really not good for Alaska or Alaskans when you get into a lot of these resource development opportunities, right? The problem is that the fear-mongering, and I'm not saying pebble, I'm saying the environmental extremist um, points of view are fear at its finest. And I call it the reverse field of dreams effect, right? If you build this, if you develop this, then this is guaranteed to negatively happen. Caribou are going to die. Fish are going to die. Um, you know, you, you will kill off the culture. You will ruin this, um, this area. You will impact climate change. You will um, make it to where we'll never recognize the place in 10,000 years. Okay, well, if climate change is going to kill the earth in 12, then 10,000 doesn't matter. Um, if the caribou up on the north slope, slope have increased in herd size, not only around Red Dog, by the way, but up around Prudhoe, um, then what makes you think that caribou somewhere else on the north slope are going to die? Um, you know, it, it's just a feelings-based, fear-based argument, and I'd rather deal in facts. And the fact is, Alaska needs new revenue sources. Um, the best way to get re revenue sources is not to gut the oil and gas industry. It's to bring forth additional opportunities. People in Alaska need jobs with the highest unemployment rate in the nation, well, almost double the national average. That's despicable. And much there higher in areas rural of Alaska. Alaska. Huh? And much, much higher in rural Alaska. We look oh, at our unemployment rate, gonna, but we I don't even consider say, rural. There are people in there are places in rural Alaska, Bristol Bay uh, census area among them, that outside of a period of time, we'll call it fishing season, are in the twenty-five to forty percent. And I'm going to say that number is actually higher because after a while, you just stop reporting that you're looking for work. You just stop looking for work, right? So well, you're not included in those numbers. On one, you on, live there, Casey. Is is one half of eligible, able-to-work residents in the borough as a whole an unreasonable number? I would tell you no. I would say that anybody that's building a business in the Bristol Bay borough, Bristol Bay region, larger Dillingham census area, one of the largest hurdles is finding uh, labor to grow their business. So there is there is a problem with that, and there's a, there must be a reason why it's hard to get somebody to to come to work all the time. One other thing though, another point that some people may be missing is that when we look at unemployment numbers, we don't always take into consideration subsistence activities. And I know that some people don't want to give that as much uh, credibility, etc. but subsistence activities are not being counted as employment. As far as I know, there's not very many people that are doing subsistence 40 hours a week. However, there are some people that are providing a pretty substantial amount of uh, food, nutrition, etc., heating through subsistence activities, and that accounts for some of the difference, not not nearly all of it, but it is some of the difference. Sure. I would tell you that you're right. They don't they, they underrepresent the people who are working in 
a subsistence lifestyle, subsistence, um, you know, day-to-day uh, activity. But they also underrepresent, or they, I'm sorry, they, they, they underrepresent the number of people, like I said, who have given up hope and don't say they're looking for work anymore, especially in rural communities. Um, I was in a village in the YK region last year, and I was talking to a friend of mine who has been without work um, for about nine years. And I met, I met this gentleman in college. We've stayed friends since then. And I said, you know, how are you, how are you doing? First of all, and he's like, well, you know, I, I do what I can. I fix snow machines. I'm pretty good with my hands. I do what I can. But as far as full-time work, haven't had it for just under nine years. Don't see myself, you know, finding a job now uh, because there's not, you know, more than half dozen good jobs in the village uh, that I'm qualified for. And I said, you have a college degree. Why are you not qualified for it? And he's like, well, you know, I have a, I have a felony. And he didn't go into details and I didn't ask, right? But he doesn't count himself. He doesn't check in for unemployment. He's gone past his eligibility, but he's still unemployed. Right. He may not be, you know, he may not be counted as unemployed, but he's still unemployed. He's not receiving state bennies. He's not receiving, you know, he's not signed up for any of the services. So therefore, he doesn't count. And I'm sure there's a lot more of those people, not only in their rural communities, but in um, in Anchorage, who once they've gone through the period of time that they are um, eligible for for services, I'm sure they stop reporting. And I'm sure they stop calling in, and I'm sure they stop, you know, self-identifying, and they make do with however they can make do. But what if we had another ten thousand jobs? Um, between you know the mines and Anwar that came up in the in the next ten years, whether those are people who are currently in you know elementary and and junior high school, or whether they're the people that are currently in high school that you know maybe go off to college or go off to tech school and want to live in the state and want to make Alaska their home, giving them those types of opportunities to live, work, play in this amazing state. It's something that we should be fighting for and advocating for and tirelessly defending the opportunities. And that's why I'm very, very happy to be the Power of the Future representative up here because those are all things that are important to me. You know, I want my five-year-old, so I have a five-year-old and, you know, I'm the 50-year-old with a five-year-old, right? And and I've had an amazing time in Alaska and I hope to die in the state and I hope to, you know, work with Power of the Future and for Power of the Future for the next 15 or so years. But I have a five-year-old who I want, when he's 50, to say I'm a lifelong Alaskan, and I'm here by choice, and I, and I have a good job, and I've been able to provide for my family, and I've been able to, you know, to balance between, um, you know, work and play, and I've watched Alaska continue to um, respect the grandeur and gloriousness of the state and be a steward of the environment, yet still give people opportunities, you know, throughout the state for responsibly developing our resources. And when it comes when it comes to the end of the day, isn't that what every parent wants, right? They want the best for their kids. And to me, the best for my child would be for him, should he so choose, to be able to, you know, do what his ancestors did and do what his 
hopefully, um, you know, progeny and, and, and offspring will do for the next 10,000 years, which is live, work, and play in this great state. And you've got a five-year-old. I've got a five-year-old. You talked earlier about maybe people with the with the global warming would make different decisions. When you're raising young children in a state, you're making the ultimate bet that this state has potential. You wouldn't ever want to uh, sentence them to a life of of despair and and no hope. And so, having a nope. child in Alaska is vote enough. I appreciate that you came on. We had our disagreements. We had we agreed on some of the things. Where so power of the future? Anybody they can go to powerofthefuture.com or something like that. You can Google it. You can find it. Anything else with power of the future that people can look at or find that you want to put out there? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, so let me let me say this. We're we're on the on the web at powerofthefuture.com. We're on Facebook at power of the future. Uh, we are on Twitter. The national feed is at Power of the Future, and the Alaskan feed is at PTF Alaska. Um, every Tuesday night between 5 and 6 p.m., you can go on 1020kbnt.com and listen to the Power of the Future Energy Hour, um, where I have guests that? ranging from... Yep, you can stream it right off 1020kbnt.com. Again, every Tuesday between 5 and 6 p.m. <clears throat> we also have a SoundCloud um, and YouTube channels. SoundCloud, if you just go on SoundCloud and search for Power of the Future, you'll find us. Um, and on YouTube, again, type in Power of the Future and you'll find us. That's pretty much where every one of our interviews, podcasts, uh, you know, uh, commercials, things like that are housed at one of those two sites. So uh, certainly appreciate the opportunity to be on the podcast case. I think what you're doing is... Um, super for Alaska, super for the, the discussion around, you know, topics of interest for for Alaskans and things that Alaskans should be interested in and care about. Um, I think it's I think it's a great service, and I appreciate you asking me to come on. Thank you, and hopefully you'll be back on. We can have some updates throughout the throughout the year. There will be this when this gets posted to alaskaconversation.com. There are some some pieces of information that I need to follow up on. If there's data that Rick had that supports his, I will hang it up there. I'll put any information that perhaps I got wrong here. There's plenty for me to research, and uh, I just appreciate it. And I'll talk to you soon, Rick. You sound, sounds good, KP. Anytime you want me on, I'll be happy to come on. All right, thanks. Good night.